Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, welcome back for another episode of the HR for Small Business podcast, and I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Hey, in today's episode, I interview James Sudikow. He's a returning guest. Last time we talked about his book, Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit and Other Stupid Stuff We Say in the Corporate World, uh, that book is all about jargon. And we had a lot of fun with that discussion. So go back and listen to that. James is a lot of fun. James also serves as the principal of CH Consulting Inc. They're a boutique management and organizational effectiveness consulting practice. And in this episode, we discuss talent management strategies, succession planning, performance management, and some other management tips and and just development things about employees. So I think you're really going to love this episode. I had a lot of fun with it. James is great. So um, I'll step aside and get on with the interview. Thanks. Hey, James, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Yeah, so last time you and I, we talked about your book, Picking the Low-Hanging Fruit and Other Stupid Stuff We Stay in the in the Corporate World. That was a fun conversation. I enjoyed it because it's we, we know we use it, the jargon, and it's so hard to get away from. But you kind of made you made fun, and, and it was a good it was a good discussion. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm not sure I've actually uh, helped myself in that class. I think I use more business buzzwords <laughs> now after I wrote the book than before. I think I went backwards. What was, what, right. what was the one you just told me about over Skype before we started recording that was one that's just popping up quite frequently? Let's add that in there before we start on the talent management stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my new most despised uh, buzzword is side hustle. I don't know why. It just drives me nuts. And you hear it all the time. I think I even heard it in an Uber commercial, not to you know give them you know, free, free press here, but yeah, they talked about the side hustle. Uh, I don't like that. How do they, <laughs> so what's, what's the context that they use for side hustle? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah. So it's this con, I think it's this context today because all of us like have our job and then we all seem to be very much impressed with ourselves for having other things we're doing that are our real thing that we're going to do once and that will supplant our job. And I think the term that now we're labeling it as until we've made it big with that thing is our little side hustle. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. good stuff. Well, we didn't you didn't come on to talk about jargon again. Uh you actually in your in your business CH Consulting Inc, you guys um are boutique management and organizational effectiveness consulting practice, but I think you focus on organizational transformation and you talk and you and talent management is really kind of your expertise. So I wanted to talk a lot about talent yeah. management. I wanted to ask you so in the corporate world, it seems like we as leaders were we're working so hard to attract talent and or steal talent away from competitors instead of right. instead of growing people that we already have. So yeah. one, of, one of your articles on Inc.com, I thought it was a, a great article where you talked about like six inexpensive yet effective ways to grow your people from the inside out. What are some of those things yeah. that you, you love? 
Well, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, so much attention gets, rightfully so, I mean, so much attention gets paid to, you know, how do we bring in the best people? But, you know, from my perspective, uh, once you get them here, um, how you kind of optimize who they are becomes really important. You certainly don't want to lose those people, but then there's also lots of other people that you've got within the organization that could easily be grown. Um, we often forget about that. Um, and, and the other thing is the, the companies that aren't forgetting about it, you know, they often come out with the, we can't afford to really do that because creating development programs are really, really expensive and they definitely can be. So there's all these things you can actually do. They don't cost you any money, which is, you know, I think where the real development's at. And a couple of things that I talked about in that article or, you know, you can set up mentor programs. Those things are fantastic in terms of getting executives to kind of mentor people often outside of their function so they get a really different view of the world. You can set up shadowing programs. And I've actually, I went through one of these. I was the shadower of, of, of a person that was at a higher level than me. And then, you know, it's exactly what it says it is. You just kind of follow them around. They, they escort you around to their world. And it really opens up your eyes as to kind of the breadth of what the job above you looks like. I always remember, I always remember earlier in my career, I used to, I used to laugh at people but not quite get why I was doing it when they'd say, oh, I could do my boss's job. And my now conclusion is anytime somebody says that, I basically want to say, you need to shadow your boss. Go take a walk in their shoes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then you'll see there's so many things that they are shielding you from that you have no idea what they do. And the shadowing is a great way to really open up someone's perspective on what that looks like. And then it's a great it starts a great conversation around, okay, so if that is truly what you want to do, what, what are the gaps? What are your development needs? And how do we kind of figure out what those are? So it's actually a really cool way to do that. And it's a good relationship builder too. So there's those kind of things that, that, I, that, I, that I've implemented. You can also, um, you know, there's the typical give someone some work to do outside of the scope of their job and let them own it. And there's all sorts of ways that can go wrong. Um, and I've seen it go wrong. You know, these kind of rotational programs became really popular for a while, and people would rotate every six months, and it seemed great on paper. But one of the problems with that is that people don't stay in their rotations long enough to have to live with the implications of what they've de- decided on, right? So it's great for exposure, but it doesn't help you live with it. So one of the cool things about giving people broader assignments outside of their responsibility is you got to keep them there for a little while so that they have to, you know, they make a financial decision and the implications of that don't show up until nine months later. Well, then you live with it and you work through it. And if you couple that with some mentoring, those are great ways to get some really like on the job learning that costs you nothing. And it actually is a great way to give people broader exposure and build talent without even having to put them through some sort of formal, very expensive kind of classroom based, you know, set of sessions. And I could tell like the, there's really no cost to it other than I can see that the, the downside might be you, you're pulling or draining resources that exist. Right. And so you're, right. you know, for a mentor relationship, you're like, you're taking time out of some executive's day to, you know, for grow yeah. and develop. And then the other side, like you're, you're kind of rotating jobs and you may not be super effective at that job. So maybe you're just not as efficient. I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you yeah. hear as some of the downsides to the, the inexpensive ones? Well, I mean, I think the downside to any of them is that you, is that, uh, well, the upside is you're not spending any money, but yeah. the downside is it, it does require investment of people to do it. Right. And I would say that's probably the same investment that you would require it. Otherwise, but this is since you're not spending money, um, you're having to find it somewhere else, right? So it does take time. Um, so, for example, the executive mentoring to do it right, 
um, takes a decent amount of time. Although what's really interesting, uh, and you know, we don't need to quote a whole bunch of, of people, but I mean, everybody knows Jack Welch. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating about what he used to talk about was by the time you get to be an executive, at least 50% of your time should be focused on thinking about people and mm-hmm. how do you build people capabilities and skills. And obviously that depends on the size of your organization. If you run a really small company, you know, you got to do a whole bunch of things. But um, it was a really interesting perspective when you think about that's your job now. It's not to be doing any of it. It's to be focusing on how do you develop the people at those next levels to be doing the work. And in that way, you could say, yeah, it makes perfect sense that an executive should be allocating a decent portion of his or her time to be doing this kind of mentoring of the next mm-hmm. level or levels below them to give them that, that experience, right? My earlier point about how we often spend a lot of time like trying to find talent outside of the walls to probably you know match the growth that we're experiencing as organizations like okay we have a gap uh, because of our growth and now we need to go find this talent but w- what's your perspective on if you're if you're developing talent kind of upstream that maybe you wouldn't have to hire somebody downstream when the growth upstream. happens what, what's your perspective I on that. You know, it's funny, like, unfortunately, what I see a lot of, um, and some of it, you can certainly understand why it happens. But what I see a lot of is people hiring for current needs. Yeah. Um, And and that's great in terms of saying, hey, look, we have a need, we have a skill set that we need, we have a set of competencies that we absolutely have to have. And of course, you would want someone that could fit those needs. But what we often don't ask the question is, what else could this person grow into that would allow them to grow with me as the company? So clearly you don't want to hire someone that can't do the job as it stands now, but why wouldn't we ask the question or set of questions to figure out, could this person grow with me? Because then to your point, you have this opportunity to really find someone that has, you know, it's that P word, the potential word, which is what everybody's looking for. But, but what's ironic is there's often a disconnect between what we want, which is someone with potential and the operational way that we select for it, which is not asking about potential, right? We yeah. just kind of try to fill the area that we have, right? So it's, it's a bummer because then you do end up with people where the company outgrows the role and they're not able to grow with them. Or sometimes you find yourself in a really weird position where had you asked about or tried to assess potential, you could actually have a person grow into a bigger role that you're now having to hire somebody else for on top of the role that they're already in, which gets very accretive in terms of cost of your business. Couldn't agree more. So, like, how do how do business leaders identify what those those current needs are? Obviously, but what the future needs are going to be based on the business's objectives or growth plans. Yeah, and no, it's a great question. I mean, sometimes you can't see what's around the corner, especially yeah. if you're small. It's hard to know what's going to happen. But I mean, that's kind of what the strategic planning process is really for. And and the way I always look at it from a talent management perspective is the places I've seen it do places that I've seen do the best at this are those that combine their strategic business planning with their talent planning. And so basically what they're doing is they're saying, okay, if we project out two years, because nobody does three to five year business planning anymore, um, at some point we'll just do six months and call it a day, which would drive me nuts. But but let's assume we do two to three years out and we're trying to figure out where are we going to be, what are we trying to transform this business into, and where are we going, and what are the core competencies as an organization we need to do it, and when do we think we'll need those? The next question should then be, let's look at our pipeline of talent that we have internally. Who can we grow? Who can adapt? Who can move? And then where does that then leave us in terms of what we need to go groom from the outside and what types of potential do we need to do there? So where I've seen it work really well is when you combine those conversations and put like this strategic planning and this talent review notion together into one thing, 
then you've got a plan because you know directionally where you're trying to take the business and you also know at the same time what are the skill sets from the people that we need to get there to do it. So when you look at, okay, where the business is going, where you, where you think it's going to go, or at least the growth projections, and you look at what core competencies you have within the organization, and let's say, okay, we need, to, we need these skills long-term to get us to where we need to go. Do you look at the people, the positions? Like, do you put names on those? Or do you just sort of look at like, okay, here's a gap. We need to grow somebody in this core competency so that way we can get there. Like, how does that, do you separate the person yeah. from the, the actual job? Like, what what do you do? Yeah, so for me, like in a perfect world, what, what, I, what I try to do when I work with companies is say, first of all, what's the competency that we need? Let's just kind mm-hmm. of separate that and almost compartmentalize it and say, for us to achieve a business objective X, Y, Z, like, what are the core competencies and skills we have to have? And if we think we have them already, then, of course, we can start to look at who are the people that have those skill sets. Or if we think that we don't, let's do an assessment of somebody or a group of people and look at whether they have this skill set or not, just so that we can kind of get a sense for just how much depth do we have in this skill set or not. So I think you have to ultimately get to the people, but I don't like to start there. I like to start with kind of what is the competency in and of itself that we think we need. And then let's, trans- then let's jump over the next bridge, which is, okay, do we have it or do we not? And the only way to get into that is to kind of assess the people. But doing it at that step of the process, not at the very beginning. And I see a lot of places where we, we don't do that. We jump right to people and what they can do. But it's kind of out of context if we don't think about what's the core competency, irrespective of the person it might be tied to. Well, I want to make sure it, I touched a little bit on succession planning because it, it seems like it, like with the generational shifting, it's probably happening more and more. And maybe in your business, you see it quite a bit. So what should an organization be doing to plan for the eventual like you know, ownership change or executive regime changes, you know, like you need to get some younger leaders in there to, you know, train them. Like how, what's the succession planning look like? So I just have this come up with a client and, and so they went in, their executive leadership team went into a bit of a freak out mode because they looked at their demographics of themselves. And then they looked at the demographics of the next level below them. And they realized that the demographics were exactly the same. And that oh, they were, you know, they were aging, right? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. they're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen in terms of the continuity of our business here? Like, what do we do? So I've been working with, with these guys uh, for a long, long time. So we came in and we did kind of a full-scale talent review with the eye for saying, hey, deeper in the organization, what do we have here? And then let's combine that with, you know, what are our timeframes at the executive level for retirement or for people kind of like, you know, transitioning slowly into potentially partial retirement And depending on where those landed, and in this particular case, you know, we landed on, okay, a few of these positions we have more runtime. So what we identified several people at several levels lower that were in a demographic that wouldn't put them ready for retirement. And we said, we got to invest heavily. We've got to figure out an expedited plan for that, which means how quickly do we kind of augment and provide multiple opportunities for development that might come more quickly than we had anticipated if we didn't have this demographic challenge. Um, and then for others, we simply said, you know what, is there even enough time given the retirement mm. window of, you know, this particular leader? So how do we then go, this goes back to what you and I were just talking about. How do we then go to the outside to figure out who we can bring in, but that someone that could also grow? 
right? So there was all this kind of stuff around, then do we think differently about the roles and the, the organization so that we could actually take advantage of this quote-unquote kind of, kind of scary opportunity to extend people into roles they hadn't done before with the appropriate mentorship while those executives were still there. So this is what the succession planning looked like. It became this very big kind of organizational design strategic session to figure out how do we kind of in a quick way figure out how to deal with this demographic challenge that they were facing. And that's what they're working on right now. They've been working on it for the last six, six months since we did it. That's really fascinating. To me, it's, it sounds like the, the very first thing you'd have to do in, in this process is to figure out the timeline first, because it's right. going to depend on, it's going to give you kind of the go ahead to, we need to develop people within the organization right. to, to fill up these positions or actually, gosh, it's coming up fast. We need to probably go to the outside. Right. And we came up with a few kind of, you know, this is usually talk you, you say it for, you know, systems implementation, but we came up with a few go, no decision dates where we said, Hey, look, we are going to try to expedite the development of person X knowing that this particular executive leader has a time frame of Y before they're going to be moving on to retirement. If by a certain point we as an executive leadership team don't feel like they're going to get there in time, then we have to go to the outside, right? So mm-hmm. kind of this notion of contingency planning around we want to develop the person internally. We, we're a little late to this game. I think they knew that. They, they kind of said, oh, man, I wish we had been doing this earlier because then we would have been further along with this person or these people. But we're not. So that's where we're at. And the contingency plan date kind of is on the project plan, if you will, to say, look, are they ready or are they not? And we have to make a decision. When people come to you about the succession planning, is any organization kind of off limits to when they should be doing this? Is there a certain time in the organization where they they should consider doing this, or is it just should it be just part of strategic planning in general? Yeah. So my my you know Nirvana world is when it's just part of your annual process. Yeah, right? so it seems like it should be. It should be, yeah, because then what happens is, in many ways, you don't get into the jam that I just described. These guys were in, right? Because you know, they had, they had they'd been really good, actually, about doing it for a while, and then they kind of rolled off for a few years, and then they kind of picked it up when there was this urgent kind of business need. Um, but the reality is, if we had done it every year consistently as part of the strategic planning, as part of the operating planning processes, combined all that, I, I think we would have had some people that were further developed and more ready than they were at this point. So to me, it should just be part of a standard annual process to be doing this, looking at your people. I mean, they're your biggest expense, and they're also the biggest, you know, asset that you have, right? You know, that's kind of a trite saying, but everybody knows it. So let's look at them every year, and let's do this exercise every year. Let's figure out, are they on course with their development plans? Do we need to change them? Has the business changed enough where we need to rethink about these things? Um, especially for small companies, especially small companies in, like, tech industries where things are changing all the time. What you thought was your path and your competencies one day isn't the next. So how do we kind of be nimble about that with our talent process, too? I read somewhere, and I think it was either one of your blog posts or, or uh, your website somewhere, but you, you talked about how more most organizations' performance management systems or processes is just simply tracking and documenting their performance. But yeah. how do you get organizations to move to something that you call progressive performance management? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, they're all look-backs, right? I mean, yeah. I don't say all, but... but- very common to look back. It's kind of like, here's what your performance was. Um, you know, to get to a different thing is that whole notion of a really big change in thinking. 
I don't want to use like the paradigm shift because that's a bad buzzword, but it's a big <laughs> shift. In, like, it's a big shift in how you have to think about what you're doing. And so the whole concept is what is performance management really, what are you really trying to accomplish? And that's kind of one of the first things that I always say to companies is say, we got to answer that question before you put any system in place. And most will say, well, we want to, we want to get our teams to the highest performing levels that we can get them. Well, what's ironic about that is the, the predominant set of performance review or performance management processes and systems out there actually don't do that at all. They just tell you what, it, what your performance looked like in the past. And so, so how do you get there? I mean, it's really hard because the only way to do it, at least in my experience, is you have to implement this real-time notion of performance feedback like real-time. Hmm. Because, and I don't know, if you, I, I had a blog that I wrote where I kind of compared corporate performance management to my high school basketball coach. Um, and, you know, it was kind of, it was meant to be a little bit of a joke, but, you know, it would be ludicrous for my high school coach to have waited until 12 games through our high school season to sit me down for a mid-year review and tell me I've made that same bad pass every game for the last 12 games and that we've lost five of those games because I keep making that bad pass. Right? Nobody would ever do that in sports. What does he do? He said, Sudikow, you made that pass right now. Don't do that again. Like he tells me in the moment mm-hmm. what I did right and what I didn't do right. And so I've actually worked with and been part of a couple of companies that did this really well. It just requires a really big culture shift. So one of the things that we did in one of these companies was something as simple as after every single meeting, the last five minutes of the agenda was always dedicated to what went well, what could have been better about that. Um, every single meeting, and it became part of the culture. It seems almost overly daunting, but you'd be surprised at how effective that was in course correcting, in helping people change a little bit about how they showed up for that meeting, about how the meeting went, and then that kind of extended to this notion of how do you give real-time feedback. Now, that's really hard um, because people are running around, but it's one of the things that that I try to do with companies is how do you start to give people this notion of giving real-time feedback versus giving a documented report of performance that happened six months ago. And that's the change that has to take place. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It it does. What's interesting to me is it's still technically a look back because it's obviously, even in the moment, it's still in the past. But... Right. Uh, but you're, but what we're talking about like performance management, you're talking like annual reviews and like things that happened a long time ago. Whereas if we can just develop some sort of system to give instantaneous feedback, whether right. that means in the moment verbally or in an email, like wh- what do you see work the best? Yeah. So for me, well, you know, it's funny, there are some systems out there and you've probably even used them or seen them where, you know, what they ask you to do as a manager is like, keep this running journal or yeah. running log. Like, I, you know, I saw a person do this and let's put that in there. But th- it only really matters if you actually tell them or have a quick conversation about it. So for me, it's one of those things where there has to be a dialogue. And obviously, if you work in an environment where there's lots of different locations, you can't always have a dialogue in person, but get on the phone um, email to me doesn't feel like it works as well because people often want to discuss uh, and have their own interpretation on what just happened, good or bad. Um, so it's just that notion of carving out five minutes to say, hey, you know what, let's come together and let's talk for a couple minutes about that last meeting. And even though you're right, it is a look back. It's meant to be either corrective in the moment or it's meant to be reinforcing in the moment of something that went well. And then you kind of go on with your day and you remember that as to what worked well or what didn't work well. That's kind of how you kind of modify and manage behavior 
um, at a real tactical level. And, and I've seen it work, um, but it works a lot better than a kind of a look back performance review system does where people yeah. are just kind of sitting there kind of taking their feedback, right? Well, that's the thing about like the annual performance review. It's like, wow, all this time went by. Let's stack up this right. year against last year and see how I did. Whereas it's like, right. you should have a general sense for how you're really doing. Um, and then it's right. just, and then you go through the motions of a performance review just because that's what you've always done. Uh, the, the, the thing I do like right. about the annual review is it is a benchmark year over year, right? But it's so yeah. subjective. Like you have ratings and whatnot. It's one manager giving you ratings. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the model of everyday feedback, but you know, is there a perfect system for it? I think that's the question we got to ask ourselves. No, and it is the right question. And actually, you bring up a really good point. I think combining the two is probably yes. the most effective. Yes, no, because having I love that. some sort of document review and kind of some forward-looking set of goals. I mean, you're probably goal-oriented. I'm goal-oriented. A lot of people are. I like to know what those things are, and I like to at the end of the year be able to kind of see how I did against those. Right. So I think that's great. I think it's that what happens in between is the part that we fail at. <laughs> you know what I mean? So oh, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think I think what happens yeah. is it's like we we know generally how we did for the entire year because it's like you don't have specifics. Right. You have this broad information about like, oh, did you hit your goals? Did you you know did you meet these benchmarks? Right. But in the moment, like uh, if you're getting feedback on a daily basis, you're gonna see the nuances of how you work on a day to day basis, and you're more likely to have right. tangible takeaways for how you actually work. It just seems like combining yeah. the two would be the best. Yeah, I think it is. And it's just like anything else in the business world, right? That just requires a lot of effort from people um, to kind of make a big shift. And that's why I think a lot haven't done it yet. A lot of people have tried to go one or the other. So it's interesting. Uh, I know of a really big company that went away from ratings. Like you said, they went completely away from it. And they said, you know what? Let's try this different, more kind of progressive way of doing it. We're not going to have a, a numeric rating scale. We're not going to do that. We're going to do this kind of like qualitative feedback and they got a lot of press for being this kind of innovative, front-running organization doing this. But what was really ironic about it is they went away from it. Um, and and because I knew a few of the, the leaders that were driving it, and eventually they said, yeah, you know, it was great in concept. But as soon as it came down to trying to kind of um, compare people's performance or do some sort of kind of a lot of organizations do the rack and stack where we try to figure out where do people fit relative to each other, they had no way to do it. And that, be, that was really important for them. So there's got to be this kind of notion of like incorporating a better set of real-time qualitative discussions without losing the quantitative kind of documented end-of-year approach, you know? I, I want to shift gears just a little bit because you've got some, so much other great information that I wanted to just make sure I asked you before we, we parted ways. Um, you yeah. talked about management and like there's, there's some really common things that managers do that dri- <laughs> drive people out of the organization. What are those yeah. things so people listening can absolutely stop doing those and encourage managers that maybe report to them, stop doing it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So this is unfortunately something I see all the time. So I do a lot of work with teams, and sometimes I work with teams that are doing well, that they're we're trying to get them to like optimal performance. But often I come in when something's just not going well at all. And what the the caveat I'll give you the sad part about it is it's not it's not the stuff that like Hollywood depicts where people are doing like unethical things or they're lying or they're cheating or they're stealing and you know they're just getting away with it. These are actually well-intentioned people that are just doing these things that drive people nuts. And so there's a few that, that, I, that I always call people out. And I, I think the first is this notion of not 
listening to your people um, <laughs> and not soliciting their input. Um, you know, yes, there are times where um, you just need to make uh, an authoritarian decision and move things forward. And I think people are pretty, um, uh, they, they understand that. But the, the manager that, that never solicits input from his or her people, especially about things that they're doing in their job, just drives people nuts. Because they feel like, you know, this person doesn't know what I'm doing or doesn't want to understand the implications. They know their, their mind's made up, but they don't have the awareness of it. So that's kind of like sin number one. And then you can combine that with the second, which is asking for people's input and then not actually using it. <laughs> so that drives people even more nuts, I think, because people view that as like a check the box. It's like they say, okay, somebody must have told my manager that they should be asking for input, but if it never gets used, um, that really, really frustrates people. So those are a couple that I see all the time. I think one of the other ones that I see all the time, and it's hard to blame managers for it, but it's a reality, is this notion of like chronically understaffing. Um, and, you know, we work in times where, you know, margins are thin, especially in certain industries, and we're always crunching, and there's always this notion of you got to do more with less. I mean, that's kind of been the vibe in the corporate world for a very long time, um, which is sad. And so managers are often put in this place where they don't have the resources that they need. For a short period of time, I think people can rally around it and kind of they can say, you know what, we can, we can charge this hill, we can get it done. But if it's happening all the time, you know, people burn out and people just kind of say, well, does my manager even really care about me as a person? We're just kind of a number now because we're going to keep squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. And, and again, a lot of, especially in middle management level, they're kind of put in a tough position where they don't necessarily have the choice around it, but they certainly have the choice to say, okay, then we've got to prioritize better. If, if we have to do what we have and we can't, we, we can't staff the way I want, then something's got to come off the table. And that's, those are hard decisions. But I see those things happening all the time. Let me add one more that I found from one of your posts that I thought was very smart. And it's so true. So you talked about how, um, let's say there's nine great performers out of 10 and there's one person oh, yeah. that's just not cutting it. They're poor performer. Yeah. They might be disruptive. What are the risks of not getting rid of that person and just hanging on to them. What does that do to the team? Yeah, that's a great one. And that I see sadly quite a bit. I mean, there's several risks. One of the, one of the first risks is they, you know, they can, they kind of become a cancer to your, to the group. Right. I mean, that, that thing where you have this poor performer that everybody knows is a poor performer. And if, if there's no action taken on it, it's really demoralizing the team, which ultimately impacts their performance. But the other thing it does is to your really good performers, they, they look at that and they say, why, why is this person not taking action on that? We know that, that this person is not performing. Some of them are going to leave, right? I've, I've had many top performers come to me and say, you know what, the reason I left here is because it seems to be okay to not do a good job and nobody seems to care. So why am I working so hard? Now, really good performers, there's something about their DNA. I don't think they have it in them to not work really hard, but what it drives them to do is to say, well, I'm going to go work hard somewhere else where where other people work hard, and that's rewarded, right? So it really can be debilitating to a team. You described learning agility as the most important trait to look for when hiring a new employee. Why is that? Yeah, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this notion of, we do not we do not know what's coming our way, even if we're really good at planning. I've learned that the hard way. I, I'm a big planner and I still don't know what's happening half the time because <laughs> things change. Yeah. And so it if you don't have someone that can learn and grow, and learning agility is really not only your ability to do it, 
but it's your desire to do it. Um, and so you find a lot of people that are really smart, but they just get entrenched in what they know and they don't want to expand. And that, that's a problem too. But you got to have people that are willing, eager, and excited to learn more, expand what they know, because that's the only way you adapt, right? And, you know, I, I tell people I've made a career out of just being flexible and learning and shoving as much information into my head as I could because you just don't know when you're going to need it. Um, and when business landscapes change, you want someone that you can have the confidence to say, you know what, we, we haven't done this before, but we're really good at taking some similarities of a different experience and extrapolating them and putting them into this thing and let's figure it out. And that's really what you want. That's what you want. Um, that's the skill set you want. If I can get that in everybody that ever worked for me, um, there's a, it's amazing what you can accomplish with that skill set. The million dollar question ultimately on, on learning agility is how do you even interview for it or recruit for it? Yeah, so it's hard, right? So, so the good news is because this learning agility thing is becoming more um, kind of accepted and well-known out there, there's lots of assessments that you can actually take, and a lot of the big executive recruiting firms have them. Um, they've built them in, um, like Momenter has some stuff. There's, there's lots of them that are doing that now. They're trying to really factor that in. And there's quantitative objective assessments you can take to see how people land on a learning agility scale. Um, you know, the other thing, though, there's lots of things that we already do from a recruiting perspective where you can do that. You know, one is the, the, as simple as the reference check, which for many people is a check-the-box activity, but you're getting the opportunity to talk to someone or interact with someone with whom this person that you're thinking about spent a lot of time working. Now, granted, they identified this person, so there, there is some bias there. But most of the people I've talked to when I've kind of probed and said, okay, so tell me about something where this person got thrown into something that they didn't have any experience with. How, what did they do? How did they handle that situation? What was their response? You usually get some pretty honest answers in terms of kind of both sides of the, the good and the developmental opportunities. So you can certainly use your reference check um, as a great way of, of getting into that uh, kind of thing. And you can even kind of throw in some stuff in the interview process. I'm not a big fan of this. Um, because I had it done to me a few times and it felt really strange, but you can have people who are on your interview slate throw curveballs at candidates and see how they respond to it. And I'll give you an example of what happened to me. This is years ago. I was interviewing for a consulting firm and one of the partners came in. I was on like the fourth person in the, in the agenda for the day. And one of the partners came in and he just started antagonizing me. Wow. And he started, yeah, he started literally disagreeing with everything I said um, challenging me, not in a, in a, in a kind of peer to peer kind of way, but in like a, why would you think that kind of a way, um, putting me on the spot, making it really, really difficult. And what I found out later was that was purposeful. That was his role. That was his purpose in the interview was to see how I would respond to that, how I would deal with the curveball that he threw me. Um, and it, it's, it's not pleasant. Um, so you have to be ready to kind of explain that to people after the fact that, that this, we're not a bunch of jerks. Um, this is kind of a test in many ways, but it was a really interesting kind of thing to see from a learning perspective, how able was I to adapt and be flexible to what was happening there and pull from previous experiences in real time moment, dealing with some, some difficult challenges that he was throwing at me. James, I want to give you a last word before we part. Anything else you want to talk about on uh, workforce planning, talent management, anything about your business, anything that's that you're working on now that you want to let listeners know about? Yeah, no, I, I, I just uh, always appreciate talking to you. It's always a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I think the, the biggest message I always try to get people is this alignment between business planning and talent planning. You know, we could on that a few times. Um, but that to me, when you're doing that, 
it's amazing how how much it opens up the conversation to really talking strategically about people. So so that's kind of my parting message, and I know we've hit on it a few times, but it, it's probably my main. Uh, if I can put that in a fortune cookie, uh, that's what I'd put in there. James Sudikow, thank you for joining the podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.